Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and the Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Hey, pod people. This episode is originally airing on Veterans Day, so I felt it was very appropriate to have my friend Bob Regan on here. Bob has a huge heart for veterans and has even started Operation Song, which is an organization that helps veterans write songs to work through their PTSD. This is one of our favorite organizations, and I've been so lucky to have written a bunch of songs with these guys. It's one of my favorite things to donate to, and if you feel moved to donate to, simply go to operationsong.org, and you can also find a link in our show notes. Now, Bob Regan. He's a fantastic songwriter and guitar player with more than 150 cuts, 25 charted singles by such luminaries as Keith Urban, Trisha Yearwood, Jake Owen, sorry, Billy Ray Cyrus, and the queen herself, Reba McIntyre. He then became the president of the NSAI board and helped get the Songwriters Capital Gains Tax Equity Act passed and so much more. And he did all of this after waiting until after he was 30 years old to even move here to Nashville. He's taught me a lot about songwriting and guitar playing and about being a friend. Here's Bob Regan. Brother Bob Regan, how are you, man? I'm doing very well. Thank you for uh, inviting us to the Chateau Regan, man. This is awesome, dude. It's, it's my little, what little creative space I have is right here. We're sitting in it. This is great. So you were born in uh, Sacramento. Sacramento, California. We're, uh, is that a musical family? No. No? Um, mm-mm. Two brothers. Two brothers, one sister. One sister. None of them musical. Well, my brother and I started playing guitars, you know, like, okay. like everybody else, but there was no musical legacy in our family. Right. And uh, if you're raised Catholic, it's not you grew up. You don't grow up singing in church. Right. Like the, what, here, here's what passes for a melody in the Catholic <laughs> Church: "A damn tailor to be God, you been to to me." So that that was that was my melodic instruction as, <laughs> as a boy. <laughs> well, two notes could have been a metal band. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that would make a good verse. <laughs> it would, because all the blackmailers would think you're worshiping Satan, but you're really not. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's what I was going to ask in my tribute to Young Frankenstein. Uh, why guitar? How guitar? Where guitar? Um, so, really, I guess as a kid, I, I, just looking back on it now, it didn't seem like anything at the time, but I was just completely transfixed by the radio. Yeah, you know, Star Wars like maybe nine or ten, and that was just a very fertile time. And you know, the end of the doo wop era. But you know, there was Elvis and Little Richard, and I would just sit in the kitchen, rather just transfixed. You know, yeah, the glowing tubes of the uh, Emerson radio. Emerson, nice. You get it. Uh, anyway, I just the music just really struck it. It impacted me, and yeah. Uh, then I just bought a cheap ten dollar guitar. And a Beatles songbook, because the Beatles, you know, where everybody was completely besotted with the Beatles at that point, myself included. And uh, I so you heard the Beatles on the radio, not from Mom and Dad. Well, no, no, I'm, yeah, the, that that kind of predated the Beatles. Um, but interestingly, 
I used to listen to the radio all the time as a kid. Then we moved to Lake Tahoe, okay. which is a beautiful place to live, but it's hell on a radio signal because it's a big basin up at oh, 6,000 right, right. feet. So we had nothing. The only radio station was KOWL, and they only played whatever bands were playing at Harrow's Club, like Sam Butera and the Witnesses, Phil Harris, Frank Sinatra, yes. Candyman by Sammy Davis. So I'd be tearing out my hair. Anyway, <laughs> uh, my sister bought a couple Beatle albums, and at first I didn't like them because she did, but then right. <laughs> uh, I got a guitar and a Beatle songbook and just started you know, grinding my way through. So was it like a songbook, like it would show you the fingerings of the chords above the words kind of songbook? Yeah, it was just one of the Beatles songbooks, but I came to find out later that some of those songs were in the wrong key. And so by the time you end up with a horrible, you know, $10 guitar with black diamond strings and you can probably right. all follow the sun in E flat, you know, because <laughs> you don't know any better, uh, you actually get some, some dexterity. Yes. So that that was kind of... That's sort of how I started, and then I bought a little Supro guitar. Uh, guitar. My brother was kind of working through the songbooks, too, with me, but he, he wasn't quite as eaten up with it as I yeah. was. Yeah, I haven't thought about Black Diamond Strings in forever. Uh, Larry Cordell's got a great song called Black Diamond Strings. Man. Look it up. So how did you then start bands with other kids yeah, in I mean, the neighborhood the, the, the good thing back then, and, and this was in the um, early 60s, you know, my buddy at school played drums, and uh, a couple of the guys played, but people started bands. You yeah. Know, that's just kind of what you did. And so we just had some bands. We played at high school pep rallies and, you know, little parties. And as, as often as not, we didn't have a bass player. We'd have to, you know, go pull somebody's grandmother's Lowry organ out of the parlor <laughs> and throw it in the back of the truck on a snowy night. And, you know, uh, But it wasn't very good, but it was just fun. And I didn't have any ambitions or any thinking this was going to be anything other than just I like to play and it was kind of fun. And uh, so I was, wasn't was that great, but nobody else was either. Were you writing your own songs or playing no, cover no, songs? No, I, I didn't. We just played cover songs. But the beautiful thing about learning guitar back then, there was no Eddie Van Halen. There was yeah. no guitar virtuosity. Maybe, I mean, Apache. Yeah. And surf guitar. Uh, but a lot of the, you know, most of the, the stuff it was Louis Louis and you know do you want to dance and just all these three chord Five wonders three and chords, Gloria yeah. and satisfaction that was about as sophisticated a guitar riff as sleepwalking needed. out then yeah yeah but that was Santa and Johnny with a right. slide that's pretty uh, cool but though. oh that was a that, yeah. sl- that laid me out yeah but so yeah we we started bands and I I ended up singing more than I thought I would not because I thought I had a great voice but I was better than you know, maybe a couple of the other guys in the band, so I ended up singing more. That's it. You and I wrote a song, and I'm trying to think of what the name... Shoot, I can't think of the name of it, but we were talking about that, that when we were growing up, if you wanted to figure out an Eddie Van Halen lick, it's like you had to put nickels and dimes on the uh, turntable to slow it down. Right. Where now there's 600 versions of everything on YouTube, and every nine-year-old can figure out how to play Yeah, and there's everything. somebody sitting there showing you exactly how to play yeah. And by the way, Bart, those little record players, there was the uh, 33, and then there was usually a 16 and a half speed. So you could tune everything down, and it would be an octave lower. See, mine only had 33 and a half and 78. Oh, okay. I never had this, or 33 mm-hmm. and a third. Yeah. I never had the 16. That would have been great. Hey, man, that's what you, you, you were... Grew up hard in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> Nebraska. Nebraska, sorry. One of but those, still, one man, of those we, corn states, yeah. 
<clears throat> shaved a lot of vinyl off of records by mm-hmm. weighing down. So you were not writing your songs. So what what made you want to come to Nashville? I mean, I didn't move to Nashville till I was thirty six. Oh, really? Yes. So I'm like, I'm ten years older than I got here in eighty five. Okay, but I was ten years older than the class of eighty five. Most most people get here went right out of college right. or younger. So I was thirty six, and all the people I was hanging out with were like twenty three, twenty four, twenty five. And you can make that, you can bridge that gap at that age. And yeah. I, so, but anyway, so yes, I, I'm old. You know, I got here later than people think I did. Anyway. I had no idea I was going to be in the music business. I just kind of liked to play guitar, and I went to college right. uh, just to get out of the house. Um, and uh, I kind of always kept playing. We had little bands in college, and you know, because my drummer buddy moved there, and I, I met met some other people. And we always said that we played fraternity parties, and you know, just this college in California. Uh, yeah, okay, at University of California okay. at Davis. So it's the ag school, but now it's a big med school, law school. Um, and you could go to college. It was eighty-one bucks a quarter tuition when I started in '66. So, so it was hardly, you know, I, I it was not crushed by student loan yes. debt. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but I just started. I still never written any songs. Um, I was just kind of playing cover songs, and I loved soul music and blues, and I loved ball and country music. Even yeah. <clears throat> I found that I was drawn to anything that just felt authentic. And soulful and real, and I didn't care. I didn't care about the genre. Do you like Bakersfield country? Or? Oh hell yes! Yeah, <clears throat> and because uh, in the Central Valley, um, you know, up in Sacramento and Davis and all that Highway ninety nine up there. Yeah, it was Buck Owens and Bakersfield sound, but but had all, all that ninety nine in that farmland was it really was Little Oklahoma from about Stockton south, and there were just a really vital music scene in all those towns. And growing up, there'd be Saturday morning TV shows, little local TV mm-hmm. shows. And I was always transfixed by country music and steel guitar. Right. Not, not to the exclusion of anything else, but that, there was certainly no precedent for that in my family. Yeah. You know, if I'd want to watch the local, you know, Ford dealers country music TV show on Saturday morning, right. my brothers and sisters were not interested in watching it with me. <laughs> it was you and a bag of potato chips sitting there. And then in college, I'd get my, tried to get my buddies to watch the Porter Wagner show. Oh man! Uh, on yeah. Saturday afternoons, and uh, I was always been transfixed by that. But anyway, in college, I just kind of played, and and then we end up with a pretty good little band, um, and we were working a bunch in clubs. And it, it took me like six years to get my BA degree because I mean the late sixties in Northern California were pretty tumultuous. Yeah, uh, and so my education got fractured. I took time off and work construction or did all kinds of stupid stuff still never dreaming I'd, there would be a career in music yeah. but then when I finally graduated our band I, I certainly didn't want to go to grad school it took me six years to get a freaking BA so I, <laughs> uh, but the band was kind of up and running and I said well man let's, let's, uh, let's do this for a year or so I get to drink beer and sleep late and meet cocktail waitresses. And hang out in bars yeah what's wrong with that so, so that, was, that was big fun did you guys <clears throat> like think you could get a record deal or was that even in the back of your minds it it rose up in our consciousness because yeah. after we then we got kind of you know we we're like the davis 
college home, you know, everybody loved us, and that was right. good. Then, then we kind of moved over to Sacramento, and we got a pretty good following there. But it became obvious to us very quickly that if we wanted to get out of the bars, you had to get a record deal. Right. And to get a record deal, you had to write songs. So I'd maybe just kind of futzed around a little bit with writing songs, but then I kind of started focusing on that to write songs for the band. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it was kind of a, a good way to do it because we were playing all of our favorite songs, uh, you know, some obscure, some oldies, and, you know, this Motown stuff. And uh, But then if you throw your own song in there and it's a big turd, and you know, you kind of go, hmm. Mm-hmm. You, know, <laughs> you know, and the audience just all of a sudden said, well, when's this going to be over? <clears throat> so anyway, I, I started writing songs kind of for the band. Yeah. And then we would rehearse them and polish them and practice them and play them live. And so that was a, that was a, you know, it was really at that point I said, okay, let's let's see if we can get a record deal. But you were really paying attention to the form of songs and stuff like that, I would imagine. I guess, but it was kind of Maybe it was just sort of it was, see how it had just been drilled into me because at that point I'd played hundreds of gigs, right? And you're playing all those songs, and then you know you just the, the shape of a song, the song form would just you know whenever people hear songs all the time, and that that gets imprinted. Yeah. Uh, but my, my, you know, the, my saving grace and my Achilles heel were the same thing. I was a chameleon, like I said. I loved country music. I loved, you know, freaking Marvin Gaye. I oh loved, man, yeah. Uh, you know, just Motown. I loved blues. Albert King. I wore "Born Under a Bad Sign" out. Oh, dude. If, if, if it was just to me, it just felt like gritty and yeah. hard and like country music. I wanted it to scare me. I want guys like Johnny Cash or Johnny Paycheck, uh, who I thought, you know, I, I could never hang with this guy yeah. ever. So, and I heard these California, the California country. I was going, man, I, I don't want my country music interpreted for me by these, you know, weed weird and watered down by these suburban <laughs> hippie types. It's like, man, you know, I want uh, Haggard, man. Give me somebody that's freaking been in the been in the joint. Yeah, this guy actually mm-hmm. might kick my ass. Yeah, yeah. Somebody that scared me. Right. Somebody that's not like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, back, why did you come to Nashville then? If you were writing songs out there and trying okay, to get a so deal? our band we were called the Skins. Okay, and uh, I like that. Uh, it was, and we got pretty good. And we actually switched over to all original, and uh, we still we had a good following, and we were making okay money. But you know that we had to pump it into a truck and sound gear and yeah. lights, and it was just you know incessant traveling, and and we. A couple labels flirted with us uh, that came up from L.A., but mostly they wanted to, you know, snort coke and meet, meet our groupies. Right. You know, <laughs> and uh, after about three trips up, I go, hmm, I don't think this is about getting us signed. <clears throat> so it's a lot of married guys slipping rings into their pockets. Yes. yes. So at that point, we uh, we said, you know what, let's call it right now. We're kind of the peak of our draw in Northern California. Yeah. And um, we're not going to make it as a band. Too many chiefs, no Indians, <laughs> too scattered stylistically. We had three singers, which is a kiss of death, yeah. uh, unless you're Fleetwood Mac. Um, but uh, so then uh, uh, I said, uh, let's move to L.A. We can each kind of do our individual things, but we'll kind of live together and help each other out on these individual mm-hmm. projects. So I moved to L.A. This, uh, after Northern California. <clears throat> But I told myself, I'm done with the clubs. So at this point, I'm uh, 30 years old, and I, I, all I've ever done is, you know, beat on guitars in the bars. 
Yeah. I, it was big fun for about five years, and it was like, okay, enough. And I was married. Uh, so I moved to L.A., and the band, we kind of did what we said we would do, but in pretty short order, everybody but myself and my keyboard player buddy, David Frazier, uh, moved back to <clears throat> Northern California. But then, um, through a strange series of circumstances, which is too ridiculous to go into here, I got a record <laughs> deal on uh, Curb CBS. Oh, okay. In like 1981. As a solo act. As a solo act. Would have been a good thing uh, had I known what I wanted. I was still back to my Achilles heel, yeah. uh, saving grace. I was still a freaking chameleon. I was writing songs, and uh, <clears throat> my songs were pretty good. Some of the songs I'd written before I was actually trying to fit into a system, they were really good, But uh, and, and the guy who produced the record uh, really liked all these different things, and we just kind of chased each song where it went, and the mm-hmm. album ended up being a big hodgepodge. Right. Uh, some of the songs are, I was really proud of on there, but it was a big hodgepodge. You writing by yourself? <clears throat> yep. I was, I'd never co-written a song. <coughs> Excuse me. Even in the band back in Sacramento, <clears throat> it was a songwriting competition. Yeah. Instead of a collaboration. Right. If I'd write a good song, the other guitar player just go, gosh, it was see over there grinding his teeth. And yeah. Say, Watch this. And he'd come back a couple days later. <laughs> so we kind of, <clears throat> we com- yeah. you know, competed ourselves into, into becoming better songwriters. But, uh, so when I was going through the uh, artist, alleged artist thing, uh, um, I was working with, you know, some. there were some great musicians. You know, it was Billy Joe Walker, J.D. Manis, uh, keep on playing him, uh, Dennis Whitfield, I think, uh, Ron so, Krasinski, Richie Zito. <clears throat> Curb out of Nashville or Curb No, this is LA? in L.A. It okay. was actually, actually, I started off with Scotty Brothers. Okay. And I could tell you about that, ah, but I'd have Scotty to kill Brothers. myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the musicians would all come up and say, man, I love these songs. You know, you want to co-write? And I go, co-write? Yeah. I never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do that. Uh, but after probably two years and, and blowing a bunch of money, and then they sw- they start off with Scotty Brothers, went over to Curb, CBS, released one single, and then released so, yeah. me. That, yeah. And that was it. So at that point, now I'm 34 years old, 35 years old with two little kids broke um i feel like i played my you know played my hand in la yeah. and by the way the only money i was making was playing in bars right so if you have a record deal no 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 to the kids out there oh, no nobody gives you any money <laughs> yeah. no record deal is step one yeah i know you think oh my god if i can just get a deal <laughs> yeah. then it's like you climb up and you look peer over the you know over the edge to that plateau right. and you go they'll back up the money <clears throat> truck in and my bus no no my no, no, band. no no so at that point, uh, I realized that I was probably my, you know, I was a C-plus guitar player, you know, maybe a C-plus singer on my good day, but on my, <clears throat> you know, on my best day, I was a B songwriter. So I figured if I'd just focus on that. But back back to how I was making a living this whole time, uh, people don't know this unless you're my age, uh, but... In 1980, when the Urban Cowboy movie came out, every bar in the universe, certainly in California, switched from a disco bar to a country oh, yeah. bar. Because this sounds crazy, but John Travolta drove the whole thing. Yeah. Saturday Night Saturday Night Fever, and that soundtrack drove 
every every club in the universe went disco, and everything was disco for about two or three years on the airwaves and in the clubs. Yeah. And the clubs and bands and clubs were still a big thing. That's where you went to hear music. Uh, then when John Travolta did Urban Cowboy, it was like, oh, John's telling us to right. listen to country and to, to line dance. So let's all do that. And they all did it. So <laughs> who knew <clears throat> that one guy? <clears throat> it's was true. Responsible? It is. Yeah. That's a uh, great point. I never thought about that. It's but anyway, so then there were just a million gigs for, to play country guitar. And when I got to L.A., I said, I will not play in any more clubs. So I was freaking painting houses, trust me, playing in a club for five hours, you know, drinking beer is a whole yeah. lot easier than painting a house in the hot <laughs> sun in Southern California. <laughs> uh, so yeah. then I was still gigging. I had two little kids, and I felt like my songs were pretty good, and there was still a little bit of a publishing and country music scene in L.A., like uh, Glenn Campbell was cutting out of there. Oh, yeah. Um, Shelley West, and, you know, people were still making records. Roger Miller? Maybe so. Yeah. I, that might have been a little after him. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, couldn't seem to get a publishing deal, in it, but people said really nice things to me in Nashville. So I told my ex-wife at the time, I, my wife at the time, and I said, um, I might have a shot in Nashville, uh, if you let's give it three years if I can write a hit we'll stick around um, if I can't we'll go home and I'll be a civilian yeah and so I was I, half the day I was studying for the LSAT and I figured I'd be I could probably I could probably be a C minus lawyer which would at least pay the bills <laughs> if, if if this guitar thing failed a lot of people <clears throat> fall down yeah <laughs> but I was I, I absolutely if I could not have pulled a hit out of the hat yeah, I absolutely would have gone back to California and just said, "Okay, I, I did it." Right. And I told myself at the time, I said, "If I don't go to Nashville and try this, I'm going to have this big roaring what if yep. lurking around in the back of my brain yep. forever." So I said, "At least this way, I, I tried L.A. and I got a record deal. That didn't work. I feel like my songs, my my best day as a songwriter is going to get me farther than yeah. as a guitar player or singer. So let me." You know, I, I found my place in my songwriting, obviously, because I was playing six nights a week in the country bars. Yeah. And my writing just kind of took that turn. <clears throat> when you came to Nashville, I mean, who did you write with? Who did you play with? Um, I came to Nashville, same thing, saying I will never step in an effing okay. nightclub again. <laughs> what did I do? So I, was, I went and applied for jobs <laughs> at Kroger, and, and then a friend of mine, uh, was out from California, said, oh, I'm playing a little gig at the Bluebird. You want to bring your electric and sit in? I said, well, yeah, sure. So this was like the first week I got to town. So I went and played there, and somebody said, hey, there's a they need a guitar player out at Linda's Lounge in Jolton that pays 30 bucks a night. You know, I said, right. sure, why not? And then, <laughs> like a week later, uh, I moved into this weird little cul-de-sac it was like Ellis Island of uh, musicians for Nashville. Across the street was Joe Diffie, who was not Joe Diffie yet. Right. Uh, he worked at the Gibson factory. Johnny yeah. Neal, you know Johnny. Oh man, yeah, just passed uh, away. Yeah, no, no, he had a stroke. I was just. Oh, that's. I was at his benefit sorry, last night. And uh, next door was the band uh, was Marty Raybon's band at the time. Oh yeah, called uh, Heart, Heartbreak Mountain. Yep. So, like almost within weeks after my getting there, I saw Marty out there, and he was kind of roaring back in those days he was yep. standing out there leaning next to his Chrysler Cordoba and it sounds about <laughs> slacks and just saying screw this town I'm out of here I'm going to Muscle Shoals so this band Heartbreak Mountain <clears throat> had a gig at Lonnie's Western Room up on the Horseshoe Stage and they didn't have a singer on the Horseshoe Stage? yes behind Lonnie's 
Okay. Uh, Lonnie's Western Room, the, the band played on a horseshoe stage okay. up behind the park. God, that's awesome. So I said, <clears throat> I said, guys, I said, I, I, if you want, I said, I can, I can get you through a couple weeks while you find a real singer. Um, uh, I can't sing anywhere near as good as Marty, but I know, you know, most of these songs, and yeah. you know, I can, we can, I'll get you through this. So it was uh, me and Brian Prout who ended up, oh know, yeah, Diamond Rio. Yeah. Uh, uh, Donnie Crap, he played in Shenandoah for a million years, fiddle player. Uh, so I did that, and then they hired my replacement, Billy Dean. Wow. So it went from Marty Raybon, people on the blog, my hand is up here. Then it was Bob <laughs> Regan, my hand is down here. Then Billy Dean. So it, it was it was just a fertile time, a lot of great people. Yeah. Probably just like now, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of incredibly yeah. talented people rolling into town right now, churning and swirling and meeting each other. Yep. And 35 years later, they'll be telling the story. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so I met Marty Raybon. Me and Billy Dean hung out a bunch. Uh, Johnny Neal, we hung out and played. And I couldn't keep up with Johnny, but he was he needed rides, so he let, let me right. tag along. Joe Diffie. Uh, and I met, and I, was, I started working in the effing bars again just because, you know, the work was there. I'm going to every songwriter night I could. Yeah. But I did meet... Uh, a couple guys, Paul and uh, Paul Scolton and Scott Mary, and they just got to town, and they didn't know what they were doing, but they had an eight-track task cam and a PV road board, okay. and that was the start of County Q. Really? <clears throat> so they thought they were going to be songwriters. So I said, well, I'll play guitar on your stuff, and you can play bass and drums on mine. They said, okay, deal. So, But then we started doing cheap, cheap, horrible little demos for people, right. for the other entry-level people. So I'll shut up in a minute, I promise. No. Um, awesome. So that was, I ended up doing studio stuff. And I'd never done any studio work in in California just because, other than our own band, if, if you're a session guy in California, you got to be able to read. Yeah. Uh, and But this was like demo, and the stakes were extremely low because they were, you know, just a bunch of... Now, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about, did you do any studio stuff? So this is this is great. When you say read, are you talking notes, notes on the page? Or, yeah, no, in, in L.A., you better, yeah, there, I right? mean, yeah, because most of, the, most of the just guys just rocking out in a session, that's a band, that's a project. Yeah. But if you're a session guy there, they'll call you for a movie soundtrack, and they go, okay, turn to bar, you know, 212, right. and then we're going to pay uh, six bars, three, four. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't do it, you know, you're done. Dude, I remember <clears throat> in the back of Guitar Player Magazine was a little column by Tommy Tedesco. Uh-huh. And he would a lot of times have the music out and what guitars he played and whatever. And he said there was no rehearsal. There was nothing. It was live. Yep. If it was a big band, you were playing a classical guitar part. Yep. And you had to nail it first time through. Yep. That's a lot of pressure. Right. I mean, it's a lot of pressure <clears throat> no matter... Yeah, but there, the but there are guys for whom that's not pressure. Right. There, <laughs> and that's that why I just said there's a separation that happens automatically. Yeah. If you can do it, you get the call. If you can't, everybody knows it. So that's so inadvertently, I ended up stumbling into this demo scene, and that was in the like 1985. Yeah. And so, but I was I came here to write, so I, I had a, a little publishing deal, but I would go over to the studio and try to work in the morning and make anything I could do to make a buck. I'd play a session in the morning, right in the afternoon, and go do a horrible club gig at night. So you did have a publishing deal here in town? Yeah, but people talk about the good old days. My first publishing deal was $100 a week, and yeah. all, you can, all you can write. And, <laughs> and I, I, I was... I was stoked to get it. Yeah. That's about like now. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember who your first single was? 
my first single was, uh, and I was still writing almost completely 100 percenters. It was yeah. uh, the, the the Kendalls cut a song called Routine, and it was the album title, and uh, uh, it was a single. It got like 45 or something, but uh, I I threw a, four, a number 45 party for myself and bought an air conditioning unit. Man, do you remember the feeling of uh, the first time you heard it on the radio? Yeah, I was pretty stoked. I mean, it felt like progress. Yeah. And, you know, people like people like what I was doing. And I, looking back, you know, I, I wasn't there, but, you know, there was most songs had something in there to that showed I could do it. And occasionally I would stumble on one that was a complete thought. Yeah. Well, you had so many cuts and so many hits. Uh, what was the reason for running for and ultimately being president for three terms of the board of uh, Nashville Songwriters Association International, NSAI? Um, I had Mark Sanders kind of... Like Mark thought, D. Sanders? Yeah, Mark okay. D. Sanders. We rewrote a bunch when I first got to town. He thought I <clears throat> should be on the board, uh, which is not a... You know, not a position people are clamoring for. You don't, right. to, you don't have to. You don't need sharp elbows to get on the board of NSAI. Uh, so I got on the board, and I'd been on the board for four or five years, and uh, uh, it just kind of was brought up. You know that I might. You know, if I ever wanted to become president, and and uh, the, the president was of, of NSAI was, was as at that time anyway was kind of a hot potato. Yeah. Who wanted to take it on? And my publisher at the time says, don't you dare do this, you know, just because. Why is that? Because well, because it, it, it'll divert you. It'll divert oh, energy. Okay. Um, but I think when I did it, I think it was in the early 2000s, maybe 2003 or four. I'd, I'd had some hits. I'd had a, a decent run. And I just felt like, you know, maybe this is just something different, you know, just some, some other. Yeah. Something, something else I could try to do. And I didn't know if I'd be any good at it, but I, I felt like I was. You didn't feel like <clears throat> writers were being disrespected or you hadn't been screwed or anything? Oh, I'd been no... absolutely screwed. Okay. Um, so you kind of had a flag to wave then, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the one thing I'm probably most proud of in, in my tenure, and I <clears throat> certainly didn't do it by myself, but I had a lot to do with it, was the Songwriters Capital Gains Tax Equity Act, yeah. which is kind of complicated. But <clears throat> basically for the layman... Uh, if you were to sell a catalog, and I was lucky enough to have some hits and get some co-pub and then mm-hmm. sell the catalog, and um, uh, but at that time it, I was taxed. At, it was taxed at regular income. When you sold the catalog, when I sold the catalog, it was like you know whatever the tax rate was, I got whacked. But my publisher Karen Conrad, and really we, she sold the whole catalog to BMG, okay. and we went forward. So she sold that exact. Same body of work that I did with the publisher's share, but she was taxed at capital gains. But I, because I had created it, was taxed at regular income. Okay. So it's complicated and stupid and unfair. <clears throat> but for that, for anybody that sold a catalog at that point, for one year you would earn money like a, you know, like a movie star. Yeah. And then you would, you know, get your clock clean with taxes, whereas your publisher who sold the other half of that copyright, exactly the same exact asset. Exact same stuff. It was the... Um, that got capital gains. So um, we had introduced a bill, and that was really a, a lot of time was spent doing that and going up to D.C. and uh, <clears throat> lobbying for the bill, and it eventually passed. What was that like? Uh, 
it was really gratifying. And I also felt like uh, I had a, you can probably tell from this, this blog that I'm a motor mouth, but I felt like I was really good in those offices. And I would, oh, I ne- I, I would never have imagined, but I could get in there and make a really coherent case in a yeah. big hurry because they don't have a lot of time. Uh, and, you know. So is this one-on-one with a senator, or was this in front of a, a hearing? Well, or? I did some congressional hearings, but most of the meetings you would meet with the staff because the senators and Congress people are, are very often just too busy. They, right. you know, they're legislative director. But you go back and back, and you, you finally do, do meet with the staff. You got to get them to sponsor a bill. Okay, and um, it's it's a very complicated process. But the good news was that we had a, such a compelling argument, and I was able to tell my story and show them the math. Uh, and then uh, there, we had no opposition. Nobody was saying, "Okay, you know, this is a horrible thing to do." I can't imagine 13 years ago anybody in D.C. knew what songwriting even was. And they still don't. That's right. the thing. It's, it's all constituent-based, and so there's a big songwriting community in Nashville. People say, well, you got to talk to you know Marshall Blackburn and Lamar Alexander. Right. They know. They're on our side. They get it. Yeah. And in L.A., they understand, and maybe in New York, maybe. they understand about you know creative content and music. But for the most part, you know, all these other senators, they, they don't have any constituents yeah. who are songwriters, and they don't care whether we get taxed or not. What was the uh, <clears throat> the music equality thing that just, what the heck? Uh, yeah, music Modernization Act. Yes. Uh, I had worked on the uh, initial attempt to get that through, okay. and that was probably the last thing I did, and it, there was a draft bill to try to address this stuff. It's so staggeringly complex. Oh, man. And I, there was a time when I could go deep on all that stuff and understand the mechanical versus performance splits of, str- of different streaming services versus right. downloads and different formulas. And it, it's mind-bogglingly complex, and nobody could possibly understand it. Uh, but, well, yeah, I worked on that a little bit. But that, that, that finally did pass, and it remains to be seen you know, how yeah. songwriters' fortunes are going to benefit from that. Now writers are being countersued from Spotify and everybody else. And you yeah. know, my wife, uh, I'm from Nebraska, and both the Nebraska senators, I think senators, voted against that act. Yeah. And you know, Amy comes from a publishing background, and she was all PO'd about it. And I said, "Honey, it's Nebraska. They don't have any songwriters in Nebraska. Well, they, they have cows and corn. That's what they're really interested in. That's what their constituents are interested in, not songs and songwriters." But I mean, the other, but for something like that, that was I said the really important thing with the capital capital gains equity act. We didn't have any opposition. Yeah. For the music modernization act, you have opposition from the broadcasters. Yeah. And from big tech. And they swing a big club up there. Yeah. And every every state, every community, large and small, has radio, and radio was vital to the, oh, man. to politicians. So when if radio wants something, they have got the ear of everybody everywhere. Yeah. Whereas even you can have something incredibly unfair, but if it only deals with songwriters, you know, in, in Nebraska, yeah, sorry, they, they don't care. Absolutely, they, they'll do it. They'll do what the radio broadcasters want. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Well, so how the heck did you, not being a former military man, how'd you get involved in the USO tours and stuff? Well, when we did one together, right, one or yeah. two, yeah, I kept you awake in many a hotel room. With no, my you snoring. did not. I don't remember that. But uh, <laughs> you should have tried harder. They put they roomed us together because we we both snored. I think <laughs> you're right. Uh, so our mutual friend Tom Shepard who wrote Riding with Private Malone yeah and that was I'm telling you this for the the edification of our 
listening yes. audience. <laughs> Hopefully there is one. Uh, so that was kind of his entree to the military community because that song is a very compelling yeah. story about a soldier who passed away in Vietnam. So Tom started doing some Armed Forces entertainment tours, and uh, then he uh, decided to put a songwriter band together of people who had written hits and asked me if I would be a part of that and play bass, which I never played bass live before, by the way. And they got Bart to play guitar, and I think Will Nance, Tim Buppert played drums maybe. But anyway. Todd Cerny. Todd Cerny, rest, rest his soul. soul. Yep, I love Todd. Yep. So we all went out there, and, and uh, the songwriters sang their hits, and then we backed them up. Uh, I think between us we had 13 number ones. Yeah, I mean, we could put it on a pretty, That's pretty, pretty good convincing show. Right there, yeah. yeah. And but Bart's songs, he had the, he had the good rocking component. You know, who, who wants to hear a ballad? You know, you can't take the honky tonk out of the girl. Well, you're so, a lot better bass player than I am a guitar player. Oh. So we should have swapped. <clears throat> thinking back on that, but it was, uh, it's quite an amazing experience. It really was. But that was the that was my idea that maybe yeah. writing with the, the active duty uh, military would be. Something Did you think about trying. that all the way back then? Huh? Did you think of that all the way back yeah, then? Yeah, that, that was, but I probably did five of those tours, I guess, five or six. Man. But yeah, the, the idea, it just kind of, really my initial impulse was, how cool would it be to just tag on a couple extra days to these tours, and we have all these songwriters over here, we'll just get a little tent or a, you know, Konex and, you know, hang out the sign and go, the songwriter is in. Yeah. You want to write a song for your wife back home, your kid, for your buddy's family that didn't make it, you know, just tell us a story and we'll write a song. Yeah. So that was my initial idea, and I would still love to make that happen. Uh, and it might happen. That's a great idea. Uh, Let good. me know how I can help. Oh, yeah. That'd be, that'd so be great. Did that turn into Operation Song? Yeah, yeah that, that, was the, uh, that was the initial idea for Operation Song. Man. <clears throat> can you describe what Operation Song is now? Um. Well, it's from just very humble beginnings, and I couldn't get any traction to do it overseas, so I reached out to somebody at the, the VA down in Murfreesboro, yeah. and the music therapist, uh, Tina Haynes, said, yeah, let's, let's give it a try. Why don't you just bring your guitar down, we'll see what happens. So I would just go down there every Friday, and just, you know, five or six guys, or seven or eight guys, or whoever showed up that day, we'd just kind of bang around and write some songs about their either individual or shared experience or just about something completely unrelated. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so fast forward six and a half years, almost seven years now, we've written probably 750 songs Man. with veterans of World War II to Korea to Vietnam to Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, spouses, uh, kids, Gold Star kids. Mm. Uh, it's, it's been a lot. It kind of I, I had no idea what I was getting into. You might notice a pattern in my life. I, I never know what I'm doing. I just leap forward and then find myself, crap, I'm going to have to work my way out of this. I've just given myself another mountain to climb. Yeah, I've been up to Fort Campbell with you a time or two. And yeah. That's, and uh, one thing we did here in town. That's right, yeah, over at Scarab Bennett. Yeah, Scar- we were writing with Charlie, mm-hmm. who was a little bit of a wild card, and his his wife was with him. Yeah. And you said, if you if you see him... Starting to go off the deep end, just put your guitar down and go get a drink of water. His wife, I think we wrote, wrote a song called Charlie's Angel or something like that. But yeah. You have any favorite stories of the guys? Oh, man. I'm sure you've got a yeah, fifty of them. So many, it's hard to, oh, man. you know, it's hard to, hard to pick one, but uh, I mean, probably one of my favorites is I was working with this uh, younger guy and he'd been a... Uh, uh, 
medic on medevac missions in Iraq, I mean Afghanistan, when it was just a horrible time in the Korongal Valley, and they were on 24-7 on call, and you know they were just mission after mission after mm-hmm. mission, going to get the wounded guys and bringing them back and trying to keep them alive. And uh, those guys come back with their adrenal system just set on 150%, yeah. and they come back and, you know, they're, how, how do you transition? How do you, you know, you're just that focused and that amped up and that hyped up and that sense of mission and purpose and life or death. And then you come back and it's just flat. Go get the, some milk, honey. Right. And I said, well, had you thought about being like an EMT or something? He said, hell no, I'm not going to scrape drunks up off the highway. He said, we made mm. a deal with these guys. You go out there in the field and if you get hurt, we're going to do any, We're going to come and get you. That's that's a pact we made to wow. each other, and he said, "I don't, <laughs> I don't have that with civilians, and I'm never gonna." Wow! But anyway, he talked and talked and talked, very articulate, and uh, I was, I, I bet he talked for at least two hours without me even picking up the guitar, and uh, I was thinking, man, how am I gonna, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna make anything out of this? Sometimes the idea comes, but he was talking about the chaos you hear in the headphones when the helicopters, you, you know, the call comes in, a medevac call, and you know, you're trying to listen to the commands and, you know, the rotors are screaming and the, you know, so what are you hearing in the phones? He goes, medevac, 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 first up and chase, go Redcon 1, clear up left, clear up right, get in the air. And I went, okay, wait, wait. <laughs> so I sang back, medevac, 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 first up and chase, go Redcon. And he just, he just rocked back in his chair and his yeah. eyes got big. And th- then we wrote the song, but it was like, they don't know what they're trying to say. Yeah. Or you're not trying to write a song. You're just trying to get the guy to keep talking until he says something that matters. Uh, but anyway, this song's called Call Sign Dust Off, mm. just because Dust Off is the call sign for medevac helicopters and always has been. Uh, so he was, you know, his, his mind was blown. But it, I didn't blow his mind by my skill and my talent. It was all his words you yeah. know, and all his emotions, you know. And then once you kind of know what the chorus is, you say, okay, how do we get here? And how does this feel? And is this how you'd say it? And are we leaving anything out? And I just get them to keep talking around the subject and, and the lines come out. I remember you and me wrote with two guys. They were both 6'3", 230, mm-hmm. pretty impressive, imposing guys. Yeah. And we just both just sat there and listened and listened and listened. As one guy talked about when he got home, he was sneaking out into the garage under the guise of working on the car. But what he was doing out there was started drinking beer. And then later on, started drinking whiskey. And before long, he had a drinking problem. And when he would go out and when he was going to go, quote unquote, work on the car, his wife just knew to, she was knew what to expect. Right. And he'd been to counselor after counselor and pastor and priest and everything else. And we listened, and we wrote this song about his experience, and he just, he stood up and headed over to me, and I just thought, oh, crap, I'm about right. I've never had a broken jaw before, but I guess I'll get <laughs> yeah. one today. Yeah. And he stuck his hand out and said, thank you. And then we were in the parking lot, because one of them smoked, I think, afterwards, and he was on the phone with his wife, mm-hmm. just telling what happened. And after he got off the phone, he looked at us and he goes, you guys aren't my wife. You're not trying to fix me. You're not a psychiatrist trying to fix me. You just listened to me talk. 
Yeah. He goes, you guys did more for me than any counselor's ever done for me. And it was just like, holy crap. Yeah, we, we hear I, that all the time. Oh, man. It's yeah, like, we're, we're not trying to fix you. We're just listening. Yeah. yeah. That's, I have a little sheet I give to the songwriters. That, you know, it just said the three rules of writing with you know, this population yeah. is listen, listen, and listen. <laughs> yeah. you know, and let yeah. them, if people get to talking, they're always going to get around what's important to them. Well, and I, I, the thing I found with doing that, and I would love to do more of that, but I was always trying to write a great song. Yeah. It's like, well, that's not the point. Yeah. We're just trying to write a song. Yeah. You know, if it's three chords, that's fine. And it's, yeah. That's fine. If it's yeah, two chords, they, it's fine. It's their words, and yeah. it's their story, and they feel ownership of that. That's, that's, the, that's the most important Man. thing. So where have these songs been played? Uh well, we we wrote a song uh, <clears throat> about a Memorial Day called "The Last Monday in May," and uh, with like myself and Don Goodman and six veterans of different conflicts, just one day when it was coming up on Memorial Day, that's been played on the National Mall for like the last five Memorial Days. We go up there and play that at the World War II Memorial, Man. and then at the Korean War Memorial, and then it's, we played on the Opry. We didn't play this last year, but the three previous years on that in the lead up to, to Memorial Day. So I'm I'm hoping. Get that to be the unofficial theme song of yeah. uh, Memorial Day, so that's and that's been played on a lot of different radio shows. It's, it's gotten a, a lot of a lot of reach. Mm. But you know, a lot of people say, "Well, man, you got to get big artists to cut these songs." And I go, nah. "Yeah, I hold my head and you know, weep silently." <laughs> Just because I tell people I spent thirty-five <laughs> effing years trying to get big artists to do my bidding with you know some success but in in this guise i'm just going to try to get these songs written and yeah. hopefully something wonderful will, will happen and we we do have some interesting things in the pipeline Good. that um, i'm not sure they're going to come to fruition but it feels like more of a reality than, than it has in the past there's also that pesky publishing issue when you have eight people <clears throat> in a room and yeah and that's i mean and people say well what do you do about the publishing you know i so say you know what i do I treat it exactly like a Nashville co-write. I say, you got your half, writer's share, publisher's share, go forth and prosper. Yeah. If something comes up and we need to license it, if you want to start your own publishing company, Joe Veteran, right. knock yourself out. Knock yourself if you don't out. want to do that, then you can sign it to Operation Song Publishing. We'll handle that, which I don't want to handle it, trust yeah. me. And then all the money will go back into the program. So far, there's you know, been very little money, but some. Yeah. So how can people hear these songs? Um, we have a SoundCloud page. Uh, if you go to SoundCloud Operation Song, uh, probably some of the <clears throat> a good quick view is uh, our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube uh, backslash C backslash Operation Song or just type in YouTube Operation Song. It'll pull up our page. And uh, you'll see some of these songs with videos. And one of the cool things we encourage the veterans to do, they don't they certainly don't always do it, but... Um, we just make a little slideshow videos. Yeah. Uh, and all, it's making a slideshow takes about 15 minutes if you have the pictures. And that's really compelling. And so some of these veterans have given us pictures or made the videos themselves. And you can see several of those on YouTube. I've watched a bunch of those. What's the uh, website? Uh, operationsong.org. Awesome. www.operationsong.org. And if anybody's so inclined to help us continue our mission... I should. I will say here that I've not taken any money for all my efforts, which are full time and far beyond, uh, for seven years. Um, again, I did not know what I was getting into, 
but when, be careful once you start a nonprofit because it's nonprofit. <laughs> yes, and that you know, that for me, I, I'm used to running 100 miles an hour, and I yeah. did it on my life on Music Row. I always ran 100 miles an hour. No now I'm running 100 miles an hour out of my lane. <laughs> Big difference. I'm off there in the dirt and the sagebrush and the gravel. Right. Uh, being a marketer, a fundraiser, a bookkeeper, an accountant, a social media. Uh, but I've learned a lot, and uh, but I've, I've told uh, the board I'm going to step down as executive director this time next year, and we did hire our first part-time help, uh, a girl named Morgan Tucker. She's a real whiz, cool. and uh, so we're going to need to hire an executive director, and that's going to have to be a necessary, yeah, in the, in the evolution that we put together a much more effective board. We have a fundraising plan, uh, and we just kind of have to. Tell the world what what we've been doing. In my naivete, I thought, well, if I just do all this amazing stuff, people will hear about it. And thank you for your you and Amy for your donations; they're much oh, appreciated. Uh, I keep thinking, well, people are going to hear the wonderful things you're doing and give us money. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, you just got to badger people for money all the time, and I hate doing that. Yeah. I'd rather take a beating. But there are people who are good at that, so we got to identify them. Well, this is <clears> going to be airing in uh, month of giving. Mm-hmm. November. So, go to the website and give some money. It's awesome. It's awesome cause. Yeah, and uh, we are clean as a whistle. Look at our nine ninety. Uh, we have about as low an overhead for our the impact we're having versus the yeah you know uh, the resources we we use to do it. It's pretty light. It's not sustainable. It's only sustainable because you have a seventy year old guy working seventy hours a week. <laughs> But I'm going to do it for one more year. So help me out here, folks. Let's help me hire, hire, find and hire my replacement. In fact, I might be looking at him, Bart Allman. I don't know who's here. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's amazing, man. That, that's that's phenomenal. Do you want to do our lightning round real quick? Yeah. Okay. Golf, I, is, I didn't I didn't know about this. I'm well, scared. No, no, no. This is this is really easy, really simple. I just just answer. Don't think. Unless you have to think. Okay. It's nothing. What's your favorite book? Uh, recently, uh, a book called uh, uh, A God in Ruins, about the World War II and a World War II bomber pilot, mind-boggling. Kate Atchison, I think, God in Ruins. A God in Ruins? Yes. Okay, I'm going to look that up. I love that. What's the last gift you gave someone? The last gift I gave someone... Wow. Uh, I gave my granddaughter a, a dress for her birthday back at the end of April. Okay. <laughs> Scared me. She's two. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. What's the first concert you saw and how old were you? Um, I went and saw um, the Righteous Brothers in the Reno Coliseum Municipal Auditorium in 64. I was probably 16 or something. Man. What's your favorite place to travel? Uh, for now, my new little forest service cabin up near Lake Tahoe. Yes, sir. It's tucked up in a little canyon on a creek, and I sit on the deck, and my troubles drift away. What do you mean by forest service? I, you said that before. <clears throat> I don't understand. What well, it's is. it's on forest service land. All okay. I, I bought the structure, and I bought the right to lease that piece of property. Okay. So I can't. And you don't li- own the land. No, I can't live there year okay. round. Uh, so I pay the Forest Service a lease amount, but it's so idyllic. It's a little 30s log cabin. How big a, is it? 1,000 square feet, but Man. there's room for you and Amy. So when you get out there, come on. Come on. 
what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Or if you hadn't been a writer, a <clears throat> guitar player? I think I would have gone to law school. Yeah? Yeah. You'd have been a good lawyer. What's the favorite song you wrote, whether it was a cut, a hit, or no one's ever heard it but you? Um, I'm going to say, this, uh, here's hoping. You may have seen the... I've, I, when I moved to my new house, I took all my gold records off the wall, but I've got my Roy Rogers cut. Yes. So, yes, here's hoping here's by hoping. Roy Rogers. Yeah. Did he cut it? Yeah. Did he really? Yes. Was my, it a- my cowboy hero. Was that on that RCA record? Yeah, on the duet album. It was okay. It, it, he I worked he that and record. Randy Travis. Okay. I worked yeah. that record. Oh, you did? I was at RCA then. Cool. Yeah. I remember him. <clears throat> yes. Remember Roy and Dusty came in, mm-hmm. and uh, we hung out with them for a while. And he did the uh, duet with Clint Black, yeah. and there, it looked like before and after with those two. Mm-hmm. That was fun. What song do you wish you would have written? And that could be Amazing Grace or the National Anthem or You Really Got Me or I Want to Hold Your Hand. Song, uh, what song do I wish I'd written? Uh, good Old Boys Like Bee by Bob McDill. That's a good one. I, I wish I was good enough to write that. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm glad I'm Bob you. wrote it. I wish I was good enough to write one that good. I'm with <clears> you. <throat> of all the guitars you own, what's your favorite electric and acoustic? Um, right now, my favorite acoustic is my little Taylor 912. Nice. I've had it for about 25 years. Um, I bought it broken, and I've added the brakes to it. Uh, and then I have a custom-made telly, and it's uh, shameful that I don't know the, the maker's name. He was a Japanese custom guitar maker out in San Rafael who was sadly murdered outside of his shop, but it's oh a, a beautiful little handmade telly. Um, and it was kind of a, a gift to me from a friend out there, but it's... Feels feels right in my hand. Tell your favorite electric. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Last one is what's next. Uh, what's next? It is time for Bob to think about what's next. <laughs> I have I have worked so hard, but all my entire life. But I tell people whatever I tell these kids that you know I talk to, I say yeah, whatever you do, you have to expend a lot of effort. But if it feels like work. You'll never be able to do it. Yeah. So find something that you could do <laughs> 10, 12 hours a day that doesn't feel like work. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to finish out this year with Operation Song, and then I'm going to see what it's like to do nothing. I'm going to hang out in the summers at my little cabin. I'm going to travel. I'm going to, and I may go out of my mind, but I've, I've always tried to prove something to myself. I don't know what exactly that is, but I've always felt like I have to do whatever I'm doing. I have to do more. Yeah. And I'm going to see what it's like to do less. I like that. Yeah. Me too. I might like it. I hope I do. I hope you do too. <laughs> well, man, it's been awesome. Thank you for doing this. It's been great knowing you for as long as we have and yes. traveling around the world and snoring with each other. Yeah. And uh, playing some songs. So thank you so much, Bob. Man, thanks for letting me ramble on. You probably got more words per minute on this particular Dude, podcast this is than awesome. any other. This is the, that's the least amount of questions I've ever asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plus, I can go deeper, too, if I need to, yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Bart. Bart.